Welcome to this reading of the Business Record, Central Iowa's Business Weekly. I'm your reader, Bob Powers. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of listeners with print disabilities. And reading from the October 4th, 2019 edition of the Business Record, here's our first story. From the Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business, Perry Beeman has the first story, Municipal Utilities Struggle to Find Workers. Tim Whipple, General Counsel of the Iowa Association of Municipal Utilities, says members of his organization struggle, like many others, to find enough workers as the unemployment rate of Iowa continues to be among the nation's lowest. Quote, my members are really under a pinch for workforce. They're small towns, most of them, particularly in northwest Iowa, where unemployment rates are really low. We have great need for water operators and for electric linemen. My organization operates apprenticeship programs for gas operators, for linemen, for safety, for water training. There's just so many jobs in rural electric cooperatives and the investor-owned utilities. We all have a need for this kind of workforce and to make sure people are still going into energy careers. And the next and final story from Insider Notebook is by uh, a writer I'm not familiar with, Susanna DeBaca, and I'll spell that. S-U-Z-A-N-N-A, D as in dog, E, B as in boy, A-C-A. Susanna DeBaca. Habitat for Humanity Women C-Suite Build Highlights Status of Women. Growing up on an Iowa farm, I learned how to fix fences and do repairs, but no matter how hard I tried, I never developed much skill at construction. Nevertheless, a hard hat and hammer replaced Excel spreadsheets and email as my tools for the day as I joined forces with a group of leaders for Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity's first ever Women C-Suite Build on September 25th. Our goal was to build a new home for an area family, but our larger objective was to continue advancing the status of all women in Iowa. Quote, Every year, community leaders from the C-suite come together on a Habitat job site, helping a local family achieve their dream of home ownership and bringing awareness for the need for housing affordability in central Iowa, end quote, said Jenna Ekstrom, Director of Marketing and Development for Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity. Last year, more than a dozen CEOs participated in the build, but only one was a woman. Quote, it was time to reflect women's reality in the workforce, said Ekstrom, who reached out to me and to Kate Banasiak, CEO of Diversified Management Services, to co-chair the project. Quote, With this build, we are working to elevate women leaders and the status of all women by coming together to support our community. End quote. 
Despite progress over the years, women still face many barriers to success. In the workplace, women still significantly lag men in leadership. According to the Harvard Law Forum's 2018 report on women in the C-suite, only 5% of CEOs at publicly and privately held companies are female, and only 24% of the board of directors are women in in Iowa, of the chief executives listed for the 34 publicly traded companies, only 12% were women. Quote, Considering the low numbers of top female leaders, the group here today represents women who have overcome obstacles and shown exceptional leadership to get to where they are, end quote, Banasiak said. And we want to create opportunities to help other women succeed. In addition to the dearth of women in top leadership roles, the overall economic status of women in Iowa remains low. The Iowa Commission on the Status of Women's 2019 report shows not only do Iowa women earn 76 cents for every dollar a man earns, 32.8% of employed women work in low-wage jobs. Additionally, 19.9% of Iowa families with children under 18 in 2017 were living with their mother in a single-parent household, compared with 9.5% living with their father. Quote, women are particularly affected by the wage gap and single-parenting, Ekstrom said, quote, which makes housing issues even harder for us, end quote. Recognizing the critical connection between affordable housing and success, the group worked diligently to provide one family with a new place to live. I improved my sawzall skills and my fellow leaders showed impressive talent and determination at hanging doors and installing floors. Sporting pink hard hats, we did our best to translate our boardroom skills to the job site and we made significant progress on the new house. But the work to support women is not a one-day job. As leaders, we must keep working to ensure all women across Iowa and beyond have opportunities, and that can happen only when we truly support women in the workplace. That means equal wages for equal work, opportunities for promotion and advancement, and seats in the C-suite and the boardroom. Those are the tools we can all use to build access. In case you missed it is the sidebar... A brief look back at news from the past week on businessrecord.com. AIB Campus Plans The owner of Competitive Edge Advertising Specialty Marketing Company has plans for the old AIB Activities Center. Ames Data Breach Drivers who paid Ames parking tickets through the city's online payment system, have been warned about a data breach. Council debates scooters. The Des Moines City Council raised a lot of questions about e-scooters, but seemed amenable to a downtown pilot if approved. Economic Impact Awards. The Greater Des Moines Partnership and Business Record presented the Economic Impact Awards. Mercy College Enrollment 
For a fourth consecutive semester, Mercy College of Health Sciences had record enrollment of new students. And finally, Grinnell College, $1 million grant. Grinnell College received a $1 million grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to highlight the public importance of humanities. Next up comes A Closer Look, Meet a Leader You Should Know. This week, the column is written by Joe Gardiaz. The subject is Chris Blunt, common spelling, President and CEO, F&G. When Chris Blunt was 16, his family moved to Iowa, and he spent several summer vacations loading trucks for a beer distributor in Waterloo. That was the extent of the Michigan native's Iowa connection, until his insurance career brought him back to Des Moines to lead annuity and life insurance company F&G. In early January, Blunt began his new role as president and CEO of F&G, which is the rebranded name of Fidelity and Guaranteed Life. The company was acquired in 2017 by an investment group affiliated with private equity giant Blackstone Group, which, through its equity funds, now owns about 20% of the stock of F&G's parent company, FGL Holdings, which is based in the Cayman Islands. Conversely, the majority of F&G's $26 billion in assets under management, policyholders' retirement nest eggs and annuities, are now managed by Blackstone. Blunt, who replaced former CEO Chris Littlefield, came to F&G from Blackstone Insurance Solutions in New York City, where he was Senior Managing Director and CEO. Before working for Blackstone Insurance, Blunt held several senior leadership positions for more than a dozen years with New York Life, where he led the company's investment group and earlier its U.S. life insurance operations. In the last 12 months, F&G, which is based in downtown Des Moines with an office in Baltimore, has brought on 75 new hires and expects to surpass 200 employees locally within the next six months. How would you compare your new role with F&G to what you are doing at Blackstone? I would say it's probably most similar to the role I had at New York Life. For the bulk of the time that I was at New York Life, I had oversight responsibility of our annuity business. So the whole retirement theme and annuities has been consistent in my career. I was hired by the folks at Blackstone to really help them navigate the insurance space. They had found themselves in a position where they were managing a lot of assets for insurance companies, about $50 million. They saw that they had a big opportunity to grow and add value, but realized they didn't have a lot of inherent insurance expertise. As part of that, I got to know the senior management team of F&G, since they were our largest client, and we still are Blackstone's largest client globally. The Wall Street Journal in May wrote about Blackstone and F&G's strategy to buy blocks of annuities 
as part of Blackstone's goal to double its insurance assets to $100 billion. Tell me more about that strategy. We're about $26 billion in assets as a classic life and annuity company. Our primary products are both indexed and fixed-period annuities. We also have an indexed universal life business, which is growing pretty rapidly right now. So I would say the primary mission of F&G is to continue down our current path, which has been growing our sales at 30 to 40% per year. As we get bigger, obviously, that growth rate will slow a bit, but we still expect to grow better than the market. So that's the first opportunity. The second opportunity is we have been, along with other companies, outbidding on both closed blocks and open blocks of annuity business. And then the third opportunity is, at some point, is probably outright acquisition of other companies. Why is the relationship with Blackstone critical to F&G's growth? When you think of Blackstone, you think of alternative investments, private equity, real estate, hedge funds, that type of stuff. That's a small part of it, about 5% of our assets. Really, where Blackstone comes into play is that they're the largest originator of debt in the world. So their portfolio companies, whether it's real estate, a company, an aircraft lease, or issuing debt securities, a good chunk of those are investment grade, and some percentage of those are really attractive to insurance investors. What's critical is they're not just a manager of fixed income, they're an originator of fixed income. So having a partner that can source attractive investment-grade bonds to get yields over and above what you can get in the public markets is a big competitive advantage. So that's really where the Blackstone role comes into play. Their hope is that we continue to grow, and as we do, they will manage more assets. How does F&G ensure it's protecting shareholders' best interests? An important distinction is that Blackstone itself doesn't own any shares in Fidelity and Guarantee. It's two of the Blackstone funds that they manage that own the shares, and there is only one Blackstone person on the F&G board, and his interests are fully aligned with mine, which are to increase the returns of shareholders of Fidelity and Guarantee. My Chief Investment Officer Raj Krishnan, who works directly for me, is responsible for the overall asset allocation of the portfolio, how much goes into each of these different asset classes. He's responsible for setting the risk parameters. Yes, I think if you had an asset manager who had complete free reign to go wherever they thought the best risk-adjusted return was, that may not always line up with the risk posture of a conservative insurance company. Tell me about F&G's niche in the retirement income space. We're a pretty mission-driven organization. If you think about sort of our core products, we're trying to help replace pensions and help people put themselves in a position where they have some level of guaranteed income. 
And particularly now, as interest rates keep dropping, I think it becomes even more attractive. We talk all the time about the old rule of thumb that you shouldn't take out more than 4% of your savings if you don't want to outlive your assets. The reality is, in this interest rate environment, that number is probably closer to 3%. And the vast majority of people can't live off 3 to 4% of their savings. That's not because they haven't done a good job, it's just that it's not a lot of income. So some form of annuities, where you can get the benefits of annuitization, really just becomes mission critical. I think the other advantage is just an efficiency play. You know, at my prior firm, we did some research that showed that you can tie up 30% fewer assets and generate the same level of guaranteed returns using annuities than you could if you're not using something like an annuity. I think for most people, the ability to give themselves some guaranteed floor of income also gives them the peace of mind to invest the remainder a bit more aggressively. What's the status of F&G's credit and strength ratings? The good news is we were upgraded to A- in November. That was really critical for us because that's kind of the minimum standard to play in a lot of the distribution channels. And we've seen a huge bump in our sales because of that. That predated me. I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. It's not the end game. We're very focused on getting to the next level, which would be straight A versus a minus. I would say realistically that's probably a year away. And it's not a capital issue. It's really the rating agencies wanting to see a longer track record under new ownership and new management. When executive leadership changes were announced late last year, including your appointment, cost-cutting measures were mentioned. What have those measured entailed? Just starting at the high level, we've hired 75 people in the last 12 months, 23 in the last 3 months. And we've got right now about 25 open positions. So actually, from a staffing and headcount standpoint, I would imagine we're one of the fastest growing companies here locally. We're running out of space because of that. So we've been having conversations with our current landlord and looking at what our other options are. I've had a lot of dialogue with the Greater Des Moines Partnership and even the governor. They've been phenomenal and supportive of the kind of growth path that we're on. So I would say on the cost-cutting exercise, that predated me. But I think that was maybe more about which every company goes through looking at at what we're doing and asking whether we are trying to do too many things simultaneously. It was definitely not an exercise in headcount reduction. Our biggest issue is, can we recruit fast enough? We've won awards in both locations, Des Moines and Baltimore, for best place to work. It's something that everybody here is pretty focused on. It's a personal passion of mine. What are some of the key values that give F&G a positive culture? I'd say one is this whole notion of collaboration, which is one of those words that is overdone. 
People often confuse collegiality for collaboration. Collegiality just means you're nice, but collaboration takes work. When your colleague calls you and you're overwhelmed with your own amount of work, do you blow them off? Do you not return their phone call? Or do you take the time to help them out? Because you know you're going to be in a similar situation where you're going to need their help. Like everything else, it has got to start with a with just a culture of respect. Given Iowa's workforce shortage and low unemployment, how difficult has it been to find talent, and where are you finding it? Great question. I would say the vast majority of the people that we've hired have been from insurance, but not all. Obviously, in the more senior levels, you need people that, as a rule, have expertise in the life and annuity space. It's hard work. You don't get every candidate you go after. And that's kind of a new one for me. That probably sounds pretty arrogant. But generally, we go through a pretty exhaustive process where when we find someone and we really like them and we feel like they fit, we can get them on board. We've had a few instances where we weren't able to get some because their home team gave them a huge raise and promotion. But we have been able to hire, so we are filling positions, and we feel really good about the quality of the people that we're hiring. What's the headcount now in Des Moines, and what's the growth outlook? It's already 184 people, and we have about 25 open positions, which I would say we'll fill within the next six months. We made the decision a while back not to hire in Baltimore going forward. The Baltimore team knows that, and we have a number of really talented professionals in Baltimore that we want to retain. But as there is normal attrition or retirement in Baltimore, we've been replacing all of those people in Des Moines. So it's partly growth and new hires to the organization. And then also, as folks leave our Baltimore office, we've been replacing them here. Is an office relocation or new construction on the table? I would say, yeah, in the next six months probably, because we're running out of space. We've been out working with the folks at Jones, Lang, LaSalle, searching for space. We'll probably have to make some decisions soon. A new headquarters building is definitely within the consideration set. The downside is that construction takes a while. Does F&G have a philanthropic focus, and have you personally chosen any organizations to get involved in? I would say that there's a really strong culture of volunteerism here. It's a pretty philanthropic place. That's kind of my other life, and something that is really important to me. It was really kind of a nice discovery when I got here that folks are pretty passionate about that. And so one of the things that we're doing right now is undertaking a review of the different charitable organizations here in Des Moines. There are a couple that we could really throw our resources around, not just funding, but volunteer activities also. As for personal volunteer decisions, I would say not yet, but I'm close. I've been the chairman of the board of the YMCA of Greater New York for the last four years, and I just stepped down from that. So I've got a little bit of personal capacity now, 
So I have been searching for an organization where I could be personally very active, and my wife has been doing the same. Do you have any hobbies? I'm a runner, and so that's been one of the cool things about here, being here, is all the trails. That has been tremendous fun, and I would say for my wife and I, the nonprofit aspect of what we do is pretty important, so that takes up a fair amount of our time. We're both golfers. She persuaded me to get better at skiing, and so I asked her to learn golf, and unfortunately, she beats me on a regular basis, so that's a little annoying. And the sidebar for Chris Blunt is, at a glance, hometown, Detroit, now lives in Des Moines, family, wife, Gretchen Nickel, two grown children, Sarah and Sam, education, Bachelor of Arts, History, University of Michigan, Master of Business Administration, Finance, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Age, 57. Contact, email, blunt at fglife.bm. Blunt is B as in boy, L-U-N-T, and then the at sign. F-G-L-I-F-E dot B as in boy, M as in mother. Phone, 515-330-3406. 515-330-3406. It looks like we'll have time for only one of the columns in the opinion section before the break. Let's start with Dave Elbert, since he's the first one here. The Elbert Files. Trump is no Jackson. I was walking toward the Des Moines Art Center on a surprisingly cool day when my friend K.C. joined me. He didn't say anything at first, which was unusual. He appeared to be deep in thought, which was understandable, given all that had happened in recent days. I took the initiative and asked, What's the difference between Donald Trump and Andrew Jackson? What do you mean, he replied. Trump keeps a portrait of Jackson in the Oval Office. He's clearly a fan, I said. But are they really that much alike? You mean because one looks like an orange version of the Pillsbury Doughboy and drinks Diet Coke while the other was rail thin and drank gin with water? Yes, I said. Well... Casey continued, Jackson had a military background and was known for his personal courage. He took a bullet in the chest before killing a man in a duel. He was later shot in the shoulder during a street brawl and involved in other fights that involved guns, knives, and canes. Can you imagine Trump, who claimed to have bone spurs to dodge the Vietnam War, doing anything like that? Casey said, Not really, I replied. Here's another difference, he said. You know how Trump brags about grabbing women by the whatever and pays them off after he sleeps with them? I'm pretty sure that if Jackson had ever met Trump, the general would have challenged him to a duel, or maybe just beaten him with a cane, because Jackson, for all his faults, was very sensitive to women's honor. Jackson tried to kill a man who accused his wife of being a bigamist, which technically was true, 
because Jackson had rescued her from an abusive husband and married her before their divorce was final. As president, Jackson went after members of his own cabinet when their wives disrespected Peg Eaton, the wife of Secretary of War John Eaton. Peg was beautiful and flirtatious and was rumored to have had an affair with Eaton that caused her first husband to kill himself, Casey continued. Washington society, led by cabinet members' wives, shunned Peg, which led Jackson to double down his support for her, often to the distraction and destruction of his own political goals. Sound familiar, he asked. But why does Trump embrace a historical figure that makes him look puny by comparison? Jackson was a strong man, Casey said, and Trump loves political strong men. Jackson had more hausfra and showmanship than any president, including Teddy Roosevelt. Also, Jackson was a real estate developer who had no time for people of color. Jackson wanted land in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee that belonged to the Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, and Chickasaw tribes, stole it from them. He also owned slaves and mistreated them. Like Trump, Casey continued, Jackson was a financial illiterate. He didn't understand economics or banking. In fact, he proudly killed the second bank of the United States, which was the central bank of his time. Kind of like Trump bullying the Federal Reserve today, I said. Yeah, and Jackson seceded way beyond anything Trump can imagine, Casey said. The sad part is Trump doesn't know history. He doesn't know that by killing the second bank, Jackson created an economic panic that set back progress by days. He doesn't realize that by being a bully, Jackson accomplished so much less than he could have. He only knows that Jackson was recognized by historians for all the reasons for too long. One thing I can assure you, Casey said as he turned and walked away, you'll never find Trump's picture in the Oval Office again once he's gone. You are listening to this week's edition of The Business Record. Our thanks to the folks at Business Publications for providing a copy of The Business Record to Iris so that we can read it for you. If you have any comments on this or any other Iris program, Give us a call at 243-6833. To repeat, that's 243-6833. Now back to the business record. And as per usual, uh, the next only other column in the opinion section is Drew McClellan's. Will the bandwagon's wheels fall off? We've all been drawn into the Carson King Des Moines Register saga. Whether we're football fans, beer fans, loyal readers of the Register, or none of the above, the reactions have been extreme online and off, including death threats. We live in a time when it's easy to whip people into a frenzy. Sometimes that fury is well-deserved and rights are wrong, but there are just as many incidents that go from zero to sixty, simply because we as a culture rush to judgment. 
It takes time to research and verify facts, so they are lacking in the early stages of a viral moment or event. On the flip side, emotion is always at the ready and can be quickly fanned to fuel the frenzy. This is our cultural reality, and many businesses, big and small, will have an opportunity to grab the proverbial viral tiger by the tail. We'd better be ready for it when it comes. I'd like us to focus on that aspect of the Carson King situation, which has been largely overlooked amid everyone's outrage on both sides of the fence. When Carson's sign began to gather steam, Anheuser-Busch and Venmo quickly announced that they would match the donations earmarked for the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital. I get it. This story checked all of the boxes. You could feel that it was going to be big. So, without doing any due diligence or background checking, the brands hopped onto the bandwagon looking for that magic viral moment and the ride was smooth, until it wasn't. With the first whiff of scandal, the brands that were involved made very different decisions. Anheuser-Busch quickly reversed their support, saying they'd honor their pledge, but were distancing themselves from King. Venmo announced they would not sever ties with King, and continued to support him and his charitable efforts. Other companies, like Goldie's Ice Cream Shop, Smoky Row Coffee Company, and Geneseo Brewing Company, all stepped in to fill the Anheuser-Busch void and jump on the quickly moving bandwagon. That's the problem with a viral bandwagon. It is moving, and the route is not predetermined. Every business longs for a viral sensation until they are caught in the middle of a viral sensation. If you're going to take the risk, you have to be prepared for whatever comes. Viral equals speed, breakneck speed. This particular type of marketing rocket burns fast and hot. That means you could catapult to an amazing height, but you also might get burned. I wish I could give you an easy checklist of how to navigate these situations, but there is no one-size-fits-all answer. This is influencer marketing at its most risky because you are not entering into a contract or negotiating with someone who does this for a living. The upside can be huge and many brands are willing to take the risk. Carson King didn't set out to win endorsements or support from brands, he was just trying to get beer money. If you are tempted to jump onto one of these racing bandwagons, remember that these individuals are regular human beings. They have not been sanitized for the media or groomed to be good spokesperson. No one has done a deep dive into their past to make sure they've always been kind, courteous, and considerate. Combine that reality with a culture that is quick to judge, boycott, and rage on, and it's bound to be a wild ride. Know that no matter how much you think you know, there's more under the surface, and you need to be ready to deal with whatever comes. There is simply no safety net. Next we come to the cover story. 
It's by Perry Beeman. The title is The City's Stage Manager Exits. The subtitle is Diane Rao Ran the Show. City Council Got the Credit. I think I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Her last name is spelled R-A-U-H. You may not have heard of Diane Rao, but if you live in Des Moines, she's affected your life in one way or another. For decades, Rao has been the force behind the scenes who made sure the Des Moines City Council had the proper materials to consider agenda items ranging from mundane to controversial. She recorded the votes using an array of advancing technologies. She cheerfully greeted City Hall visitors who wanted to buy a dog license, pay a parking ticket, or spend a few moments sharing their opinions on city politics. On September 30th, City Clerk Diane Rao worked her last day in Des Moines' gloriously beautiful and restored City Hall. A couple of weeks before, business record photographer Dwayne Tinky had captured Rao's image in an upstairs office. Hers was on the first floor in recent months that had a sweeping view of the Grand Hall on the second level, just outside the council chambers. On her last day, the city issued a proclamation in her honor and attached her name to the hospitality area near the clerk's office, a comfy spot with couches she had requested to help make citizens wait to see a clerk or someone in the city manager's office more pleasant. Quote, this all comes because of her behind-the-scenes coordination Councilman Chris Coleman said a few days before Rao called it a career, quote, she's like the stage manager. All the actors get all the credit, but it wouldn't be a show worth a damn without somebody really making sure that everybody knows where to be when and has the right script and paperwork and that they're able to move forward effectively, end quote. The daughter of a school superintendent who taught her the importance of public service, Rao moved around a lot before graduating from Martinsdale St. Mary's High School. Later, she completed a bachelor's degree in business administration with a minor in communications at Grandview College, now Grandview University. On July 2, 1984, she started working for the Des Moines Clerk's Office. Quote, two days later was a paid holiday. I thought, I'm going to like this, end quote. Rao recalled with a chuckle. Rao, 58, worked her way up to deputy city clerk under city clerk Donna Botol Baker, and the two of them made for a double dose of no baloney service. The duo kept their senses of humor, however. We're pretty sure when someone gave Rao a bell for retirement, she surely laughed. Rao was in charge of ringing a bell at the city council meetings when speakers like Academy Award winners, thanking their third cousins, talked more than the allotted five minutes for commenting on city services, ranging from street paving to police coverage or economic development aid. That's a lot of ringing when you consider she attended 639 council meetings, starting with her first in 1993. Some trivia. The latest council adjourn was 
10.22 p.m. The earliest was 5.07 p.m. After a decade as chief deputy clerk, Rao was promoted to city clerk 16 years ago. The upstairs clerk's office eventually moved to the middle of City Hall's first floor after a temporary move to an East Village office building where City Hall was being remodeled. The first floor space is much more convenient for visitors, especially for those for whom the wide stairwell leading to the second floor is a challenge. Rao prides herself in the service she provided. She didn't sit in her glass office, usually with the door open, thinking the grunt work should be left to others. In fact, city budget cuts meant that she lost two of her nine staff members, making her contribution that much more important. Rao was patient with the many citizens who came in, including the few who were belligerent or didn't understand the procedures. Quote, There's a quote that my parents made us read all the time, where it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice, end quote, Coleman said. She embodies that. Oh, sometimes you goof, like the time Rao was talking to a man who wanted to pay for his retiree health insurance. As she tried to help, Rao leaned into the counter with her hip, accidentally hit the panic button. Two police officers showed up unexpectedly and asked if there was a problem. The retiree thought he was in trouble. He wasn't. Rao wasn't sure what was going on for a moment. Then there was the day a guy took a sweaty $5 bill out of his shoe to pay for a parking ticket. I happened to be at the counter that day, Rao recalled. She didn't say whether she accepted the bill, but her expression suggested she did. Al Setka the new communications guy on the city staff and a veteran public relations representative, was kind enough to inform Rao that she has worked in City Hall nearly a third of the time the building has been there. We're not sure she was totally impressed with that statistic, but she did smile while relaying it. It's a good thing she was around because the city council passed 1,604 ordinances during her tenure. If she and her crew hadn't been on the job, the pure poetry that is the city code might never have taken its rightful place in history. Rao and her crew helped issue 28 kinds of permits along with dog licenses, and they accepted payments for the ever-popular parking tickets. They addressed the varying needs of council members and even fielded calls from concerned parties in Des Moines, Washington. Parentheses, don't worry. Our friends in Washington got our calls, too. End parentheses. Advancements are reflected in this stat. About a quarter of all parking tickets are paid online now. Next year, dog licenses should be on sale online, too. When Rao took the job, there were no computers, and she and the other clerks typed everything. Then they had 10-inch floppy disks. Now they use sophisticated computers and software, but still manage to put out an agenda that, let's say, has the simple elegance one might expect from something that that still came off a typewriter. City clerks are typically the very fount of information 
in a city government. They know everything because they have to, and Rao was no exception. This is a public servant who watched the East Village rise from an area that had fallen on tough times. The John and Mary Papa John Sculpture Park replaced a string of small businesses in abandoned lots. The police force went from focusing on wannabe gang members associated with the Crips and Bloods in Chicago to participating in a neighborhood improvement effort with their colleagues in the parks, public works, and community development departments. Rao and her staff took 24,000 phone calls a year. We are the home base for everyone else outside. We are like the ombudsman, Rao said. One time, Rao was helping a homeless person navigate the challenging pros of city regulations. She did so patiently, even though she could plainly see the next person in line was the state attorney general. A couple of times a month, she would take her spot in the high back chair in front of the half-circle-shaped council table. She would call the roll and record the votes, and probably most people in the public thought, who is this person? She just did her job. Rao's family members were so well-trained to not call on council nights, they played it safe even on days the council didn't meet. No one ever calls me on Monday nights at home because they don't know if I'm at a council meeting or not, Rao said with a laugh. It will be fun to find out what everyone else does on Monday nights, end quote. There have been trying times when challenges turned into fine moments. Rao recalls responding to the flood of 93 when Des Moines lost power in many areas and tap water everywhere. The city had no computers, and the three-a-day news conferences delivered critical information about where to pick up water, for example, on poster boards. At one point, Rao worked 36 hours straight, fueled by adrenaline. The disaster turned out to be a shining moment for local governments that responded, and it led to a number of initiatives that improved planning and communications among local city and county departments. Now the city sends out texts when there is trouble. Times change. Even the typewriters go. People who might have called council members or row now give their two cents worth, more with inflation, via email sometimes. When former Governor Robert Ray served as interim mayor from May to November in 1997 after Arthur Davis died, the city staff got a close look at how the elder statesman operated. He was a delightful man, Rao said of Ray. When Ray left the post, he sent Rao a photo and a handwritten note thanking her for her service. He couldn't help but pose a bit of a question, too. Quote, I always wondered what you were thinking, end quote, as the council debated, Ray wrote. <laughs> you could see his mis mischievous grin just reading the words. Rao no doubt thought plenty, but she's not sharing, even now, and her poker face would go a long way at Prairie Meadows. Bru uh, quote, I've been told I have a great poker face. So maybe I should end up in Vegas playing poker. Yeah, the clerks used to sit with their backs to the audience and we faced the council. And then the remodel came 
where we are now facing each other. And so my expressions, you know, can be seen. And it's not about me. And I try not to react because that doesn't help anything, end quote. She kept a straight face when community activist Kalanji Sadiq refused to give up the mic at a council meeting and was arrested hours after making sure local reporters knew that he planned to get arrested. She kept a straight face when residents of Foster Drive, one of the most expensive neighborhoods in Des Moines, home to CEOs, lined up to complain that the city's public works assessments on their properties were simply too expensive. She watched Councilman George Flagg rail against the city's staff, alleged inaction without a flinch. She sat in silence as neighbors from all over town accused the city of spending too much on downtown and business deals and not enough in the neighborhoods. The council has police protection during meetings, and for that reason, Rao said she never felt threatened. Quote, we had a man come to the lectern, and he had a paper sack full of something. He set it up on the lectern, and everybody kind of wondered what was going on. But we have two police officers on duty, so I was never worried. Parentheses, nothing happened, end parentheses. Rao enjoys volunteering in her spare time and plans to continue. She won the Governor's Volunteer Award in 2010, when Chet Culver was in office, for her work helping people with tax returns through United Way. Frank County, the longest-serving mayor in Des Moines, said Rao was a stalwart in city services. Quote, she's always there. She's always available for support in good times and bad times. She gives us the information we want and the public needs, end quote. Said Rao, I've just been honored to do this and still have fun every day. These people are my second family. You can't work somewhere 35 years and not realize that these people are your family too. And I'll miss them. But you know, it's time to go and spend some time with my family. Bell rings. Parentheses. Bell rings. Time's up. Good luck, Diane. And parentheses. And as our time winds down, we turn to the on the move column. Promotions, changes, appointments. No byline here. The Stelter Company announces succession plans. Dateline August 28, 2019. The Stelter Company in Des Moines has named two third-generation family members to lead the company with support from a newly appointed executive leadership team as a part of a succession plan. The company's owners, Larry Stelter and Peggy Fisher, announced their plans to retire in June 2020. Next year will mark Stelter's 50th year with the company. Fisher marks her 25th year next month. Founded in 1962, the Stelter Company specializes in working as a strategic partner with nonprofit organizations to create multi-channel marketing to cultivate donor relationships. The company employs more than 100 workers and has nearly 1,500 clients. In 1991, Larry Stelter purchased the company from his father, Paul Stelter, 
becoming the second generation at the helm. Fisher joined the company in 1994 as creative director, after a successful career as art director at Country Home Magazine. Fisher was the chief operating officer before being named CEO in 2013. Nathan Stelter, Larry's oldest brother, has been named president of the company. Jeremy Stelter, Larry's second son, has assumed the role of executive vice president. Bev Hutney has been promoted to CEO, taking over for Fisher. The company further outlined new executive roles in a news release. Next one. Partnerships Murphy, named IBC Executive Director. Dateline August 29, 2019. Joe Murphy is leaving the Greater Des Moines Partnership to become Executive Director of the Iowa Business Council. Murphy, the partnership's Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Public Policy, will replace Georgia Van Gundy, who joined Hy-Vee. Murphy, who has lobbied for the partnership, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa, has a bachelor's degree in economics from UNI and an MPA from Drake University. Quote, Our members, with Georgia's leadership, have spent the last three years focusing our efforts on high-level initiatives that create solutions to address our workforce challenges, strengthen Iowa's economic climate, and build stronger relationships between business and education, end quote, said IBC Board Chairwoman Mary Andringa. Quote, we have strategically differentiated our work to be a catalyst for public and private partnerships that will elevate Iowa's economy. We are confident with over 10 years of legislative experience as well as a wealth of connections with higher education, economic and development and state government, Joe will continue the momentum and impact of our work, end quote. And finally today, Schumacher appointed to appeals court. Dateline, August 30th, 2019. Julie Schumacher, a District 3B judge, has been appointed to the Iowa Court of Appeals by Governor Kim Reynolds. Schumacher of Schleswig previously was an attorney with a private practice in Denison. She received her bachelor's degree from the University of South Dakota and her law degree from Creighton University. Schumacher is filling a vacancy on the appeals court created by the retirement of Chief Judge Gail Nelson Vogel of Spirit Lake. The appeals court is Iowa's intermediate appellate court, composed of nine judges who decide appeals from district courts across Iowa. You've been listening to the business record on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. I'm your reader, Bob Powers. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS. 